Hello, and welcome to the Methods of Rationality podcast. Before we begin, I wanted to draw attention to the fact that there is now a Worm podcast. I know there's a lot of readership overlap between Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality and Worm, and thought this might be of use to some listeners. For those unfamiliar with Worm, it's a novel released online spanning over 1.7 million words. The Worm Audiobook Project is a group of people volunteering to put it into audio format. There is a link to the podcast in this show's description, and the audio version is quite well-read. And now, further essays. First Essay Joy in the Merely Real by Eliezer Yudkowsky, March 2008 Quote Do not all charms fly at the mere touch of cold philosophy? There was an awful rainbow once in heaven. We know her woof, her texture. She is given in the dull catalogue of common things. Unquote. John Keats, Lamia. Quote, Nothing is mere. Unquote. Richard Feynman. You've got to admire that phrase, dull catalogue of common things. What is it, exactly, that goes into this catalog? Besides rainbows, that is. Why, things that are mundane, of course. Things that are normal. Things that are unmagical. Things that are known or knowable. Things that play by the rules, or that play by any rules, which makes them boring. Things that are part of the ordinary universe. Things that are, in a word, real. Now that's what I call setting yourself up for a fall. At that rate, sooner or later, you're going to be disappointed in everything. Either it will turn out not to exist, or even worse, it will turn out to be real. If we cannot take joy in things that are merely real, our lives will always be empty. For what sin are rainbows demoted to the dull catalog of common things? for the sin of having a scientific explanation. We know her woof, her texture, says Keats. An interesting use of the word we, because I suspect that Keats didn't know the explanation himself. I suspect that just being told that someone else knew was too much for him to take. I suspect that just the notion of rainbows being scientifically explicable in principle would have been too much to take. And if Keats didn't think like that, well, I know plenty of people who do. I have already remarked that nothing is inherently mysterious. Nothing that actually exists, that is. If I am ignorant about a phenomenon, that is a fact about my state of mind, not a fact about the phenomenon. To worship a phenomenon because it seems so wonderfully mysterious is to worship your own ignorance. A blank map does not correspond to a blank territory, it's just somewhere we haven't visited yet, etc., etc. Which is to say that everything, everything that actually exists, is liable to end up in the dull catalog of common things sooner or later. Your choice is either A. Decide that things are allowed to be unmagical, knowable, scientifically explicable, in a word, real, and yet still worth caring about, or B, 
go about the rest of your life suffering from existential ennui that is unresolvable. This puts quite a different complexion on the bizarre habit indulged by those strange folk called scientists, wherein they suddenly become fascinated by pocket lint, or bird droppings, or rainbows, or some other ordinary thing which world-weary and sophisticated folk would never give a second glance. You might say that scientists, at least some scientists, are those folk who are, in principle, capable of enjoying life in the real universe. Mundane Magic by Eliezer Yudkowsky, October 2008 As you may recall from some months earlier, I think that part of the rationalist ethos is binding yourself emotionally to an absolutely lawful reductionistic universe. A universe containing no ontologically basic mental things, such as souls or magic, and pouring all your hope and all your care into that merely real universe and its possibilities without disappointment. There's an old trick for combating Dukkah where you make a list of things you're grateful for, like a roof over your head. So why not make a list of abilities you have that would be amazingly cool if they were magic? or if only a few chosen individuals had them. For example, suppose that instead of one eye, you possessed a magical second eye embedded in your forehead, and this second eye enabled you to see into the third dimension, so that you could somehow tell how far away things were, where an ordinary eye would see only a two-dimensional shadow of the true world. Only possessors of this ability can accurately aim the legendary distance weapons that kill at ranges far beyond a sword, or use to their fullest potential the shells of ultra-fast machinery called cars. Binocular vision would be too light a term for this ability. We'll only appreciate it once it has a properly impressive name, like mystic eyes or depth perception. So here's a list of some of my favorite magical powers. Vibratory Telepathy By transmitting invisible vibrations through the very air itself, two users of this ability can share thoughts. As a result, vibratory telepaths can form emotional bonds much deeper than those possible to other primates. Psychometric Tracery by tracing small fine lines on a surface, the psychometric tracer can leave impressions of emotions, history, knowledge, even the structure of other spells. This is a higher level than vibratory telepathy, as a psychometric tracer can share the thoughts of long-dead tracers who lived thousands of years earlier. By reading one tracery and inscribing another simultaneously, tracers can duplicate tracings and these replicated tracings can even contain the detailed pattern of other spells and magics. Thus, the tracers wield almost unimaginable power as magicians. But tracers can get in trouble trying to use complicated traceries that they could not have traced themselves. Multidimensional Kinesis With simple almost unthinking acts of will, the kinetics can cause extraordinary complex forces to flow through small tentacles and into physical objects within touching range. 
not just pushes, but combinations of pushes at many points that can effectively apply torques and twists. The kinetic ability is far subtler than it first appears. They use it not only to wield existing objects with martial precision, but also to apply forces that sculpt objects into forms more suitable for kinetic wielding. They can even create tools that extend the power of their kinesis and enable them to sculpt ever finer and ever more complicated tools. A positive feedback loop fully as impressive as it sounds. The Eye The user of this ability can perceive infinitesimal traveling twists in the force that binds matter. Tiny vibrations, akin to the life-giving power of the sun that falls on leaves, but far more subtle. A bearer of the eye can sense objects far beyond the range of touch, using the tiny disturbances they make in the force. Mountains many days travel away can be known to them as if within arm's reach. According to the bearers of the eye, when night falls and sunlight fails, they can sense huge fusion fires burning at unthinkable distances, though no one else has any way of verifying this. Possession of a single eye is said to make the bearer equivalent to royalty. And finally, the ultimate power. The user of this ability contains a smaller, imperfect echo of the entire universe, enabling them to search out paths through probability to any desired future. If this sounds like a ridiculously powerful ability, you're right. Game balance goes right out the window with this one. Extremely rare among life forms, it is the Sakai no Ogi, or Hidden Technique of the World. Nothing can oppose the ultimate power except the ultimate power. Any less than ultimate power will simply be comprehended by the ultimate and disrupted in some inconceivable fashion, or even absorbed into the ultimate's own power base. For this reason, the ultimate power is sometimes called the Master Technique of Techniques or the trump card that trumps all other trumps. The more powerful ultimates can stretch their comprehension across galactic distances and eons of time, and even perceive the bizarre laws of the hidden world beneath the world. Ultimates have been killed by immense natural catastrophes, or by extremely swift surprise attacks that give them no chance to use their power. But all such victories are ultimately a matter of luck. It does not confront the ultimates on their own probability-bending level, and if they survive, they will begin to bend time to avoid future attacks. But the ultimate power itself is also dangerous, and many ultimates have been destroyed by their own powers, falling into one of the flaws in their imperfect inner echo of the world. Stripped of weapons and armor and locked in a cell, an ultimate is still one of the most dangerous lifeforms on the planet. A sword can be broken and a limb can be cut off, but the ultimate power is the power that cannot be removed without removing you. Perhaps because this connection is so intimate, the ultimates regard one who loses their ultimate power permanently, without hope of regaining it, as shivo, or dead while breathing. The ultimates argue that the ultimate power is so important as to be a necessary part of what makes a creature an end in itself, rather than a means. 
The Ultimates even insist that anyone who lacks the Ultimate Power cannot begin to truly comprehend the Ultimate Power, and hence cannot understand why the Ultimate Power is morally important. A suspiciously self-serving argument. The users of this ability form an absolute aristocracy and treat all other life forms as their pawns. Thou Art God Shatter by Eliezer Yudkowsky, November 2007 Before the 20th century, not a single human being had an explicit concept of inclusive genetic fitness, the sole and absolute obsession of the blind idiot God. We have no instinctive revulsion of condoms or oral sex. Our brains, those supreme reproductive organs, don't perform a check for reproductive efficacy before granting us sexual pleasure. Why not? Why aren't we consciously obsessed with inclusive genetic fitness? Why did the evolution of humans fairy create brains that would invent condoms? It would have been so easy, thinks the human who can design new complex systems in an afternoon. The evolution fairy, as we all know, is obsessed with inclusive genetic fitness. When she decides which genes to promote to universality, she doesn't seem to take into account anything except the number of copies a gene produces. How strange! But since the maker of intelligence is thus obsessed, why not create intelligent agents, you can't call them humans, who would likewise care purely about inclusive genetic fitness? Such agents would have sex only as a means of reproduction and wouldn't bother with sex that involved birth control. They could eat food out of an explicitly reasoned belief that food was necessary to reproduce, not because they liked the taste. And so they wouldn't eat candy if it became detrimental to survival or reproduction. Postmenopausal women would babysit grandchildren until they became sick enough to be a net drain on resources and would then commit suicide. It seems like such an obvious design improvement. From the evolution fairy's perspective. Now it's clear, as was discussed in a different essay, that it's hard to build a powerful enough consequentialist. Natural selection sort of reasons consequentially, but only by depending on the actual consequences. Human evolutionary theorists have to do really highfalutin abstract reasoning in order to imagine the links between adaptations and reproductive success. But human brains clearly can imagine these links in protein. So when the evolution fairy made humans, why did it bother with any motivation except inclusive genetic fitness? It's been less than two centuries since a protein brain first represented the concept of natural selection. The modern notion of inclusive genetic fitness is even more subtle, a highly abstract concept. What matters is not the number of shared genes. Chimpanzees share 95% of your genes. What matters is shared genetic variance within a reproducing population. Your sister is one-half related to you because any variations in your genome within the human species are 50% likely to be shared by your sister. Only in the last century, arguably only in the last 50 years, have evolutionary biologists really begun to understand the full range of causes of reproductive success. Things like reciprocal altruism and costly signaling. 
Without all this highly detailed knowledge, an intelligent agent that set out to maximize inclusive fitness would fall flat on its face. So why not pre-program protein brains with the knowledge? Why wasn't a concept of inclusive genetic fitness programmed into us, along with a library of explicit strategies? Then you could dispense with all the reinforcers. The organism would be born knowing that, with high probability, fatty foods would lead to fitness. If an organism later learned that this was no longer the case, it would stop eating fatty foods. You could refactor the whole system. And it wouldn't invent condoms or cookies. This looks like it should be quite possible in principle. I occasionally run into people who don't quite understand consequentialism, who say, But if the organism doesn't have a separate drive to eat, it will starve, and so fail to reproduce. So long as the organism knows this very fact, and has a utility function that values reproduction, it will automatically eat. In fact, this is exactly the consequentialist reasoning that natural selection itself used to build automatic eaters. What about curiosity? Wouldn't a consequentialist only be curious when it saw some specific reason to be curious? And wouldn't this cause it to miss out on lots of important knowledge that came with no specific reason for investigation attached? Again, a consequentialist will investigate given only the knowledge of this very same fact. If you consider the curiosity drive of a human, which is not undiscriminating but responds to particular features of problems, then this complex adaptation is purely the result of consequentialist reasoning by DNA, an implicit representation of knowledge. Ancestors who engaged in this kind of inquiry left more descendants. So in principle, the pure reproductive consequentialist is possible. In principle, all the ancestral history implicitly represented in cognitive adaptations can be converted to explicitly represented knowledge, running on a core consequentialist. But the blind idiot god isn't that smart. Evolution is not a human programmer who can simultaneously refactor whole code architectures. Evolution is not a human programmer who can sit down and type out instructions at 60 words per minute. For millions of years before hominid consequentialism, there was reinforcement learning. The reward signals were events that correlated reliably to reproduction. You can't ask a non-hominid brain to foresee that a child eating fatty foods now will live through the winter. So the DNA builds a protein brain that generates a reward signal for eating fatty food. Then it's up to the organism to learn which prey animals are tastiest. DNA constructs protein brains with reward signals that have a long-distance correlation to reproductive fitness, but a short-distance correlation to organism behavior. You don't have to figure out that eating sugary foods in the fall will lead to digesting calories that can be stored as fat to help you survive the winter so that you mate in spring to produce offsprings in summer. An apple simply tastes good, and your brain just has to plot out how to get more apples off the tree. And so organisms evolve rewards for eating and building nests and scaring off competitors and helping siblings and discovering important truths and forming strong alliances and arguing persuasively, and of course having sex. When hominid brains capable of cross-domain consequential reasoning began to show up, 
They reasoned consequentially about how to get the existing reinforcers. It was a relatively simple hack. Vastly simpler than rebuilding an inclusive fitness maximizer from scratch. The protein brains plotted how to acquire calories and sex, without any explicit cognitive representation of inclusive fitness. A human engineer would have said, Whoa, I've just invented a consequentialist. Now I can take all my previously hard-won knowledge about which behaviors improve fitness and declare it explicitly. I can convert all this complicated reinforcement learning machinery into a simple declarative knowledge statement that fatty foods and sex usually improve your inclusive fitness. Consequentialist reasoning will automatically take care of the rest. Plus, it won't have the obvious failure mode where it invents condoms. But then, a human engineer wouldn't have built the retina backwards either. The blind idiot god is not a unitary purpose, but a many-splintered attention. Foxes evolve to catch rabbits. Rabbits evolve to evade foxes. There are as many evolutions as species. But within each species, the blind idiot god is purely obsessed with inclusive genetic fitness. No quality is valued, not even survival, except insofar as it increases reproductive fitness. There's no point in an organism with steel skin if it ends up having 1% less reproductive capacity. Yet when the blind idiot god created protein computers, its monomaniacal focus on inclusive genetic fitness was not faithfully transmitted. Its optimization criterion did not successfully quine. We, the handiwork of evolution, are as alien to evolution as our maker is alien to us. One pure utility function splintered into a thousand shards of desire. Why? Above all, because evolution is stupid in an absolute sense. But also because the first protein computers weren't anywhere near as general as the blind idiot god and could only utilize short-term desires. In the final analysis, asking why evolution didn't build humans to maximize inclusive genetic fitness is like asking why evolution didn't hand humans a ribosome and tell them to design their own biochemistry. Because evolution can't refactor code that fast, that's why. But maybe, in a billion years of continued natural selection, that's exactly what would happen if intelligence were foolish enough to allow the idiot god continued reign. The Moat in God's Eye, by Niven and Pornell, depicts an intelligent species that stayed biological a little too long, slowly becoming truly enslaved by evolution, gradually turning into true fitness maximizers obsessed with out-reproducing each other. But thankfully, that's not what happened. Not here on Earth. At least, not yet. So humans love the taste of sugar and fat, and we love our sons and daughters. We seek social status and sex. We sing and dance and play. We learn for the love of learning. A thousand delicious tastes matched to ancient reinforcers that once correlated with reproductive fitness now sought whether or not they enhance reproduction. Sex with birth control. Chocolate. The music of long-dead Bach on CD. 
And when we finally learn about evolution, we think to ourselves, Obsess all day about inclusive genetic fitness? Where's the fun in that? The blind idiot god's single monomaniacal goal splintered into a thousand shards of desire. And this is well, I think, though I'm a human who says so. Or else, what would we do with the future? What would we do with the billion galaxies in the night sky? Fill them with maximally efficient replicators? Should our descendants deliberately obsess about maximizing their inclusive genetic fitness, regarding all else only as a means to that end? Being a thousand shards of desire isn't always fun, but at least it's not boring. Somewhere along the line, we evolve tastes for novelty, complexity, elegance, and challenge. Tastes that judge the blind idiot god's monomaniacal focus and find it aesthetically unsatisfying. And yes, we got those very same tastes from the blind idiot's god shatter. So what? Thank you for listening. As always, you can always read many more of Yudkowsky's writings at lesswrong.com. The music used is the intro and outro to Queensryche's Empire album. Come back in two weeks for 1984, Part 1. <laughs>